We have two uh, readings this morning. The first one comes from Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. Uh, You can find that on page 1138 of the Blue Bibles on the chairs. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do what do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. Flipping across now to 1 Timothy chapter 2. That can be found on page 1193 in your Bibles. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I'll read from verses 1 to 6. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God... And one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. Well, good morning again, everyone. It's great to have you with us here today as we add uh, another sermon into our Gospel Thought series. Uh, We are a church that very much sees that teaching through whole books of the Bible is the gluten-free bread and butter of the Christian life. (laughs) And a very big thanks to God for Ezra and the series just finished. I think God has really blessed us with Jamie's handling of the scriptures with great diligence, heart and longing to apply well to us today. And built on such a solid foundation of what we call expository preaching... We occasionally take a week just to have a look at a topical issue of the day from the Christian worldview as those who know of God's great love for us shown through Jesus' life, death and resurrection. The first two entries in the Gospel Thought series in recent years were uh, transgenderism and depression and anxiety and you'll find uh, both of those online. And I thought that heading into an election year in a society increasingly gripped by political fervour on a whole range of issues from COVID, vaccinations, global warming, uh, morality, managing the economy, 
it would be great for us to think through politics together. Um, as I sat down to write, however, I realised that the extraordinary amount of questions uh, that people have around this, and if I tried to answer them and then counter the objections you might have to the answer and things like that, we'd be here at uh, two o'clock today. So I set myself a more modest goal of trying to give us insight into our current sort of cultural moment and apply some biblical principles well for us to build a framework in our heart to try and answer together uh, a lot of uh, those questions. And it's great to have our youth in. As always, I, I'm, I totally get that your reaction might have been politics, who cares? I can just switch off uh, for the next half hour. But I hope you find this really helpful and insightful in the way our world operates at the moment and the kind of um, society that you are inheriting uh, from us, which has some fairly unique challenges. And also, if you're here today for uh, checking out Jesus for the first time, a very warm welcome to you, and I hope that you find today kind of a real insight into the heart of the Christian life and what you might call its kind of take-home cash value. Super happy to catch up and chat some more with you as well. Just say hi after the service, because we love helping people explore who Jesus is. For those who are already followers of Jesus, part of living wisely, I think, is to be good students of the times in which we live, to note the directions, passions and prevailing winds of our culture. I've increasingly found good podcasts helpful and on this topic I've referenced one there in your notes called This Cultural Moment. Now, it's a couple of Christian guys. I'm not sure I agree with everything they say, and I'd love to sit down and ask them a couple of questions. But on culture, I think they're super insightful, and I re-listened to all of season one this week, and episode four is particularly good uh, on politics. So if you're looking for a good podcast to listen to, I would recommend that one with the qualification I gave before. (laughs) Uh, On uh, frameworks, however... Uh, they are really good at analysing culture and what they do in this one is to draw on a framework first put forward by a Jewish scholar who in a short history of the world kind of gave a a label to some key kind of movements in our culture uh, across time and labelled those key movements first, second and third culture movements as a framework for discussion. Uh, To explain what that is, the first culture uh, kind of way of living is described as those cultures that actually have a deeply spiritual and often superstitious view of the world with multiple gods that need to be appeased or sought favour from. So think the Roman Empire before Jesus, uh, many of the world's societies across the continents, whether they be tribal or ancient or richly developed cultures in the East. And of course, some cultures still operate on that basis today. But general to most was a deep sense of foreboding and fear about what was happening in the spiritual realm and with the gods, because they were envisaged as being places full of chaos and evil with warring forces that showed very little interest in humanity. And it's into this culture that the Judeo-Christian message of there being one God, a God who created our world with care and order, 
was absolutely mind-blowing. Genesis, the opening book of the Bible, was world-changing, proclaiming that there was a loving creator God full of goodness, who after our rebellion against him, pursues humanity in love and starting with his care for our world as Genesis kicks off, we zoom in to see him relating directly and personally with the nation of Israel, revealing a plan that would ultimately bless all nations. But then to our surprise, as you keep reading on in Genesis, the kind of the the camera lens zooms in even further to show this creator God interacting on a very personal level with one man, Joseph. This personal, loving creator God guiding our world and people relationally was some news to a first culture world. It was world changing and it kicked off what we would now term second culture, which has particularly shaped the Western world with lots of what we now take for granted as kind of worthy values, like the value of human life, equality, the rule of law and justice, being shaped by God's word. Third culture then, you can probably trace back its origins to the Enlightenment beginning in the 17th and 18th centuries. And it's actually one where societies begin to define themselves against second culture. Individual liberty starts to come to the fore and both the church and many of, many of the kind of hereditary monarchies which govern society are slowly sidelined, paving the way in the West at least for much as what we now experience as modern democracies, the political system as we know it. But it's important to note that that second culture is not just slowly moved away from. At certain points in time... There's this movement starts to define our new society in reaction against second culture ideas and the older ways of which Christians identify with. A recent example, I think, can be found when it comes to sexual ethics. So go back just kind of 50 years to what we call in the West the sexual revolution there was uh, what was always happening behind the scenes suddenly becomes an open and public movement away from the second culture kind of Christian belief of sex being uh, created and reserved for lifelong married male and female couples. At the time, Christians were still seen as the kind of moral goody-two-shoes with some level of respect, in, uh, in some cases pity, Yet many saw such ideas as unnecessary and defined themselves free, openly, from such moral imperatives. Yet in recent decades, that has shifted quite quickly again, where the Christian sexual ethic is no longer a harmless thing to be kind of tolerated or pitied. Rather now, someone who's committed to the Christian sexual ethic of heterosexual marriage is now considered immoral, unloving and intolerant, holding views that need to be purged from our world. Now that's just one example of third culture not just moving on, but defining itself against second culture, much of which flowed 
from God's word. And at the same time as this, I think the third culture idea of the individual pursuit of happiness has been shown to be a little empty. And that's kind of the world that our our kids and teenagers are growing up in now, where there's rising rates of depression and anxiety, uh, loneliness in our ever-digitally-connected world. Third culture has really struggled to uh, produce a life of worthwhile pursuits and meaning. And what it's giving birth to is now what we would call the activist generation. And many of our teenagers will grow up uh, thinking this is normal and our young adults firmly participating in it. And this activist generation now sees our world's problems, inequality, poverty, racism, and an environment in decline, and wants to do something about it. And I must say, that is to be encouraged. So if you're youth sitting here today, I'm not critiquing you for that. I think wanting to do something about our world's problems is to be encouraged. Yet I want all of us to note the deep irony here that the things that are longed for, peace, equality, freedom from poverty, freedom from the threat of war, freedom from a declining environment where we feel precarious, freedom from suffering, are all things promised by Jesus in his coming kingdom and can be mitigated today through obedience to Jesus. Yet so many, so kind of society is pursuing these kingdom values whilst wholeheartedly rejecting the king. Yet in great love, through his church here on earth, Jesus calls all people to turn to him in repentance now, reconciling us to God. And I've got to say to our youth, if you're looking for a life of purpose today, nothing compares to Jesus, who calls you to the greatest, most diverse, most significant cause in history, the building of Jesus' kingdom. And for those in our world who do not want the king, however, they are without the future hope of a world recreated by God. They're without the assurance of God's love. They're without guidance, law and power that come from beyond our world. So that just leaves us with a massive amount of problems to be solved now by us if you think this is all we've got in the world. And our activist generation with really no great love for the existing political system know that they need politics to achieve outcomes to pass laws around marriage, to make decisions about our environment at global gatherings like those held in Glasgow in recent weeks. So for many kind of of the younger generation coming up, if you don't have Jesus, politics is very much becoming the new religion. It's your vehicle to create a better world. Convictions are passionately held. There's a deep sense of needing to bring others on board with your beliefs and your manifestos because the very future of the world seems to hang in the balance. So at this cultural moment, how should Christians think about politics in a God-honouring, holistic, other-person-centred way 
that doesn't lose sight of the church's calling to go and make disciples of Jesus and teaching them to obey everything he's commanded us. So let's begin by laying some biblical foundations. And if you've closed it, open up the Blue Bibles on your seats to Romans 13 on page 1138. And as you do so, ask yourself this question. Would you prefer a bad government or no government at all? Just make up your mind and your head very quickly there. If you can't do that, imagine with me for a moment, no government at all where a drunk driver kills someone that you love and the consequences of those actions are in the hands of the mob that gather around the car. Imagine a world where someone more powerful than you can dispossess your family of their home in the middle of the night, where there's no public health system, where only the wealthy can afford care and the poor need to beg for any kind of assistance. Sadly, some of those things are not too much of a stretch for some in our world to imagine. They simply are a stretch for us. As a teenager, I don't know, I don't know if it's still in the school curriculum anymore. Any of our people who've come through school recently or currently read Lord of the Flies at school? Required reading for us at school. I'm not seeing any hands go up. <laughs> um, but what it does is portray the horror of what happens in the absence of government. And when your parents think it's appropriate, it's fairly graphic at points. I think it's actually a really good read for our youth to consider this point. And to this kind of, you know, if you can start to grasp the horror of kind of law of the jungle, uh, no government at all, to this, Romans 13 tells us, verse 1, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Now, our minds here run to all sorts of kind of what-if questions... And it's a passage that usually dies the death of a thousand qualifications. But let's not do that and miss the main point. That it's part of God's ordering of the world to rule through governing authorities. And when you take a moment to compare the anarchy of self-rule, you can pretty quickly see that it's actually part of God's mercy and kindness to this world that we have governing authorities. And as such, given they're instituted by God, rebelling against governing authorities, well, you're rebelling against God. To be anti-government at its core is to be anti-God. Now, of course, sin does muck up everything like it does, and uh, no difference here. It often does corrupt those in power. But let's not point the finger at others It's often at our hands injustices still occur. It's imperfect. And yes, those in power, just like us, can still willfully reject God's rule. Yet its intent and pattern is there. The people of the world are to fear doing wrong, 
because of the justice those in authority are to bring, and those who do right are to be commended, verse 3. And verse 4 talks of those in authority as God's servants, whether they recognize his authority or not. They are described as God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. We are reminded, if you've been reading through Romans up until uh, this point, of the immediately prior instruction at the end of chapter 12, that the Christian is not to repay evil for evil, but rather strive to do what is right in the eyes of everyone, leaving room for God's wrath for the wrongdoer. Now sometimes, in many places in the world, people have to wait until God's final judgment to see that justice. But sometimes, as shown in our passage, justice is brought much sooner than that through governing authorities. Therefore, verse 5, all Christians are to submit to the authorities. Christians are to be good citizens, great citizens, to actually have a higher view of government than others because we realise where that authority comes from. And whether our rulers and authorities realise it or not, they are God's servants in God's world. Now, of course, we have loads of questions about bad government, evil regimes, laws that contradict God's word. Feel free to light up the SMS line. It's already been sufficiently lit up at nine. And I'm sure there'll be loads of questions for today, and partly because there are so many, And because this is quite contentious, I'll actually take some time this afternoon or tomorrow to try and answer all of those, and we'll put it up on the website uh, tomorrow in an audio file, but do send them in. Yet for now, note that the Apostle Paul was not some sort of Pollyanna person writing in a time of peace and security with an overwhelmingly uh, positive view of government. He was writing in the time of Emperor Nero, who didn't have a very good record of treating Christians well, and it was about to get a whole lot worse for Christians in the Roman Empire for a few hundred years. Yet this was God's word to his church that was going to be at the heart of it all. And if you're in any doubt still that all authority on earth, whether they recognize God or not, comes from God, even when it works against us, you need look no further than Jesus, who stood silently before Pontius Pilate, who said to him, Jesus, don't you realize I have the power either to free you or crucify you? And Jesus answered, you will have no power over me, if it were not given to you from above. Jesus knows where governing authority comes from. Uh, The next verse, verse 6, moves on, and I think it's fit for wall tapestries in every Australian tax office location, as we see that even tax collectors, as much as we revere them in society, tax collectors listed here as God's servants. So the implication is Christians pay taxes, Christians pay revenue owed and they show due respect and honour to governing authorities. Now this is God's word to Christians whether their authorities were the Roman Empire, 
whether they're hereditary kings, dictators or ancient dynasties and those who live in democracies like ours. Be good citizens, submit to authority because it's part of how you submit your whole life to God. So turn now to our second reading, 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 6, which you'll find on page 1193 of your blue Bibles, the ones on the chairs at least. Do it on your phone as well. 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Which makes total sense if we followed the logic until this point. If kings and those in authority are God's servants, and part of how God rules the world in his mercy and kindness, pray for them. Because if they rule well, peace and quiet lives where we can pursue lives that please God is a great thing. And the good ordering of society and our place in it, it pleases God, we're told here. So pray for it. Pray to the God who wants all people to live in relationship with him. He created all people and he's provided his son as saviour for all who would turn to him. Who verses 5 and 6 kind of link in. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, He gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. So submit to whatever authority we live under and pray for them. Be good citizens, pay our taxes and show due honour and respect to those who govern us. Sounds very Australian, doesn't it? (laughs) Yes, as much as that runs against the current of how we generally think about both our taxes and politicians in Australia, that is what God commands all Christians to do. And it's really the sum total of all the Bible has to say that we can directly correlate to how Christians relate to our politicians. Because if you haven't figured it out yet, how we feel about politics is how we feel about people who have authority over us in our case, democratically elected political leaders. And I think the absence of anything more than that is quite telling. It tells us that we shouldn't be more preoccupied with politics than God's plans. God's already given us his plan for this world to build the kingdom of God, which Jesus said is not of this world. Good governance is a great thing, it pleases God. And unlike most people throughout time and even around our world today, we actually get a say in it, having the opportunity to vote and participate in it. We should recognise this is quite unusual across time and across the world. Yet followers of Christ should have kind of locked away as we think about politics. This is not what is going to save our world and right all of its problems. This is not going to get us to the utopia that so many people think is possible, yet are so frustrated we can't achieve. From the Christian worldview, we know this is actually on us 
because of human sin. It's sin that so often corrupts those who have power. It's sin that causes most people to vote in their self-interest now rather than take the pain for the benefit of the whole for the sake of others that we don't know. In different regimes, it's sin that causes one generation's freedom fighters to become the military oppressors of the next generation in so many nations. It's sin that makes our worldly kings think it's okay to live in opulence and splendour on the back of so many people who are poor who suffer. Yet against this bleak backdrop, God has given us a king of a very different order and revealed his authority, his love and his grace and promised all who would bend the knee to him a future that is free of fear, free of poverty, free of corruption, free of sin, free of everything that spoils and wearies our world. Ephesians 1 verses 7 to 10, I think I've got it there ready to pop up on screen, uh, Monty, thanks man. Where we read, we've done a whole series on Ephesians by the way, you can go back and listen, there's two sermons on this passage. But we read in Ephesians uh, 1 chapter 7, in him, being Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace, which he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Our world's problems do have a glorious solution ahead as things come under the loving authority of Christ. So for now, our biblical foundations as we come to thinking through how to engage with politics are submission to authority, prayer for those who are in authority, because it's part of how we recognise God's authority, and I would add in there, to have our hope firmly placed where it should be in Christ. Politics, if you haven't figured it out, will not save us and it will not sort out all the problems of our world. Only Jesus will. Yet, I would also say this should never lead us to becoming disinterested in our world now. Because every person on the planet is precious to God. God longs for every person to come to the knowledge of the truth about Christ. Good governance is pleasing to him. And we have the rare chance in our system of governance to participate in it and as Christians to reflect God's heart for God's world to others, to encourage those to be in power, to be committed to justice, mercy, care for the poor for the example, care for the environment because we know the one who created it and has given us a stewardship role over it. So with our submission to authority and prayer in place as good citizens who show appropriate honour and respect, I think the rest of it is actually an issue of freedom for us, of which we want to apply wisdom to, paying careful attentions 
to our conscience as well. Yet, right now, I think the most important thing I can do is put before you what I think, just my opinion, is the danger that threatens to pull apart our society at this cultural moment. I think it's so important because it's actually a danger that can, has the power to rip apart our churches too. And I would say that danger is purity spirals. Never heard of them, blank faces across the room. I totally get it. It's not a common turn of phrase, but let me explain. This actually comes from a great article on the Gospel Coalition website and I've put the direct link there in your sermon outline and uh, for those not on the net there's a few uh, copies I've printed up the back and it talks about purity spirals in relation to COVID. Not at all topical at the moment but I'll use it anyway. <laughs> and it's how, all about how groups of people and movements be- can become fixated on one single value. So here's the definition. We'll pop it up on screen. Thanks, Monty. And just feel free to leave it there probably for the rest of the sermons. Fine. I'll read you the definition and then unpack it for you. A purity spiral occurs when a community becomes fixated on implementing a single value that has no upper limit and no single agreed interpretation. And the result is a moral feeding frenzy. It's a social dynamic that plays out across that community, a process of moral outbidding unchecked, which corrodes the group from within, rewarding those who put themselves at the extremes and punishing any nuance or divergence in thought relentlessly. Just leave that up on screen to help uh, process that. Now, I should say, if you're a little bit older, I think younger generations will get this more quickly because it's largely fueled on the internet and through social media. So if you still read the newspaper in its physical form, you'll struggle to get this, but read that same article online and make the mistake of scrolling down to the comments section below and you'll see it, the long tirades of argument and ferocious abuse in the comments sections below. That's a purity spiral playing out. So the article which I've referenced, I'd actually really encourage you all to read this week, and there's copies up the back, argues that Australia is in the grip of two purity spirals at present. Two communities have become fixated with one single value in relation to COVID. The first community values freedom, the second, safety. Now, freedom and safety are good things. Big fan of both. But a purity spiral occurs when a community focuses on just one without any upper limit to pursuing that value or even any agreed definition of what we're chasing. So a discussion might start in an online uh, forum or a Facebook group, community rallies, or even like-minded Christians Uh, concerned about, we'll just run with the issue of uh, freedom for now, and it can spiral out of control if that's the only value that we're talking about. Those groups give kind of kudos to the true believers who 
argue passionately about something like freedom. But the person who goes for any kind of nuanced aims or aims to bring some balance to the discussion, dare we say a compromise solution on restricting freedom in some way, well, they're not a true believer. And particularly in online groups, they get slammed by that group, cancelled, rejected out of it generally, and that group then just becomes a little bit more extreme. And so the spiral continues. Any form of nuance or divergence in opinion when an argument is trapped in a purity spiral get punished by exclusion. And so the spiral continues. And I should say, in fairness, it happens on both sides of the arguments as well. So to look at the other purity spiral, if you listen to some people talk about safety during COVID, they talk about it as if the world can actually be made a safe place and that we should be willing to sacrifice any freedom if someone is at risk of harm. There's seemingly no upper limit to this pursuance of safety. Any talk of an acceptable rate of infection, illness and death, you're a social outcast immediately. (laughs) And amidst this all, it's politicians who really cop it. In the eyes of one community, they're the dictators, not championing the unrestricted freedoms of which our society is built. From the other community, under the illusion the world can be made a safe place, well, why are we opening the borders? Keep them shut, build a wall, mandate vaccinations for everyone, make me safe. And to make matters worse, both communities caught in these spirals pretty much despise the others and are totally derisive and dismissive of the other. So one side sees the others as selfish, misinformed anti-vaxxers. And the other sees the safety crowd as the sheep not smart enough to do their own research, getting the jab out of fear. Purity spiles exist and are growing in many areas of debate. So just to switch topics on the environment, you're either all on board the climate change train or you're a climate change denier and never the two should meet. (laughs) Any form of nuanced discussion or desire to bring people together and find solutions, you are ruthlessly excluded from both camps. And so our politicians, they can't go for the middle ground anymore because we're becoming so much more polarised in so many ways. I think this is a time we, you know, we've been biblically instructed, please pray for those in authority, both in government and in SA Health and all the different people who are trying to help us work our way through COVID, managing both the safety concern and the freedom concern. I reckon a lot of people in those positions are going to have... PTSD for many years to come and I'm very thankful for the work they do on our behalf at the same time as getting slammed from both directions. Please pray for those who are in authority over us. Now there's a huge amount I realise we're not covering in regards to politics today. It's likely the sermon application no one was expecting. 
But I actually chose this way to go because I think it is our most pressing issue at this cultural moment. Purity spirals and the resultant political views and opinions that flow from them are a real danger not only to our society but also to our churches and for Christians, the unity in Christ which we are called to treasure. And it endangers our given by Christ mission to go and make disciples of Christ, teaching people to obey Jesus' commands. So how does an understanding of the gospel help us to do better? Well, firstly, it's acknowledging that our ultimate value as Christians, the highest virtue of of all for Christians, is love. Totally supersedes freedom or safety, whichever camp you're in. And love, biblically, like a holistic picture of love... Uh, I think is uh, best described in uh, 1 John chapter 4. I don't know that I've actually put this up on our slides, but I'll, I'll read it to you. Talking about love, a value we can hold on to that we can safely be a little bit more extreme about and safely realise there is no upper limit to. We read in 1 John 4 verse 12, coincidentally one of my favourite verses to preach on in marriage. Anyway, 1 John 4 verse 12 says this, No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And in the context of 1 John, it's painting this picture of a circuit being complete, where we really understand what love is by understanding what Christ has done for us coming to die as an atoning sacrifice for sins. We've, that's the first part of the circuit on love, understanding God's great love for us shown in Christ. We're called to show that to one another, uh, Christian uh, or not, uh, yet for the Christians to kind of close the circuit by living lives of praise and thanksgiving to God, living uh, lives showing our love for Him. So this love that starts with God is understood by what Christ has done for us, flowing between each other, then reflected back to God together. That's the one John picture of God's love, that kind of circuit being made complete. And of course, it's only Christians who understand that's really what love is. I think understanding that is the only thing that can break you out of the freedom or safety purity spiral so that we can listen to and love those with whom we might disagree on politics within the church because it's the safe place that we can do that because we're treasuring our unity in Christ above all others as our highest value. We can talk about these things without fear of being cancelled or cast out. We can wrestle with complex issues in unity together. We can seek to understand perspectives different to ours and apply our collective wisdom as we wrestle with the political matters of the day. What do we think about this week's vaccine mandates? How do we think about meeting together in a world where singing, hugging and 
packing a lot of people in the building together, has had and will continue to have some restrictions on it as governments try to balance both freedom and safety. Please pray for them. And widening out beyond COVID, you've got to ask the question in politics, when do we march in the streets? Over what issues? How do we seek to have our thoughts heard in a democracy that we just happen to be in as bills come before Parliament that legislate things that are against the revealed will of God? What do we think about that? If kind of gospel-hearted, Bible-believing, willingly sitting under Jesus Christians are, say, 7% of our population, are we happy to have 7% of the say in the political world? I am, but I realise not everyone is. I'm not saying that's right and, and you're wrong if you feel differently, but they're the kind of questions that we can wrestle with together because it's really an issue of both wisdom and conscience. And how amongst all of this can we avoid getting trapped in purity spirals? How can we avoid putting politics in a place thinking that that's how this world is going to be saved? And how can we avoid getting distracted away from the plan that actually does save God's church here on earth, presenting the great news of Jesus to a world that desperately needs it? But also with the wisdom of understanding that we're doing so in a culture that's increasingly defining itself against kind of this second culture world order that at least nominally had a place for God in public debate. Well, I don't have all the answers and I can't give you a, a simple three-minute wrap-up, but I hope I've at least tuned us into what I think is happening in this cultural moment in God's world. I hope I've laid down the foundational principles of how we are to relate to authority with submission, prayer, honour and respect. Very un-Australian. And called us to all be aware of and in some cases snap out of some of the purity spirals that are drawing us in. As we treasure the unity we have in Christ as people who know God's plan for our world to unite all things under his authority. So that together, with the guiding principle of love, we can wrestle together with how to engage and share the gospel in the world and how to engage in politics as well. In ways that do not lose sight of our God-given mission to point everyone in our world to the loving rule of Jesus and invite all to willingly bend the knee to Jesus' loving and saving authority so that people can take their place in his coming kingdom where we won't need politics, we won't need to rally around ideas on how to solve our world's problems because they simply will be no more. Praise Jesus for that. Light up the SMS line, I'll get onto it tomorrow, pop them up on the website, but for now, let's pray. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that you are the loving creator of the world, the one true God. We thank you that despite our rebellion against your authority as a people, that you lovingly pursued us, and as we stand here today, can see the culmination of that plan of sending Christ to die upon a cross for the sins 
of the world and to reconcile all people who willingly bend the knee to his loving rule and authority. We thank you that Jesus is a great king to live for uh, with not one of the failings of anyone in authority in this world. We thank you that his rule is a loving one and his motivation is a saving one and that he is a glorious eternity prepared for all who come and bend the knee to him. Please help us as a church in a difficult cultural moment to be loving and gracious with one another Uh, And as we engage with politics and those we love in your world, help us to do that in ways that bring honour and glory to you, with biblical clarity, but also with a great tone of love uh, and respect and honour for those who uh, have been placed uh, with uh, positions of authority over us in this world. Uh, Please help us to draw together and treasure our unity in Christ and in so doing be able to engage on all sorts of issues and today we think primarily politically on things that would otherwise divide us. May we have an open heart and really deeply listen and seek to understand others who have a different view than us. Uh, May each of us be humble, uh, not to think that we have a perfect view of the world and the way things are and that our authority sources have it right and others have it wrong. Please help us listen uh, to one another and uh, firmly place our trust in you as our source of authority in this world today. Please help us to do this well for the sake of the mission that you've given us, for the sake of our unity in Christ, uh, for the sake of your glory and honour, and for sake uh, of those today who remain suspicious about the claims of authority that Jesus has over this world. Might you draw many to yourself uh, for their salvation, uh, for your glory. And uh, please help Christians in this context to be humble and not to think too highly of ourselves, but loving and gracious uh, to others, realising that all we have is a direct gift from you and not things that we've earned on our own account. And it's in Jesus' precious and very powerful name we pray. Amen.